Hey y'all, Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Alan Parker said... Sometimes, with the British film industry, it's hard to know if we're waving or drowning. Let's find out. Welcome to another Britflix.com podcast. Today's guest is Stephen Vogue. Hello, Stephen. Hello. Now, before we get into it, let me just introduce why you're on the show. You wrote the screenplay for the 2011 film um, The Awakening, which... To my mind, and I won't spare blushes with this, um, is an elegant and brooding British horror film. It includes an amazing central performance from Rebecca Hall, but I think that amazing performance stems from what you've written in the screenplay. As a screenwriter myself, I have that bias, and I'm sticking with it. Um, I think it's amazing that you take someone in what ostensibly would be viewed on a surface as a horror film, and what you give us is someone who is... A cynic first, and then becomes a terrified and confused shell of a woman, and then you give her you give her, her a peace, and all that through the journey of what essentially is a ghost story, and uh, that's why I wanted to uh, have you on the show to talk about the conceiving and writing of it. So welcome to the Great. podcast. I mean, I, that's uh, obviously music to my ears because that's kind of what I was uh, aiming for. <laughs> At the outset, so that's uh, fantastic. I think they now call it um, elevated horror, don't they? Which is, I think, basically um, a kind of marketing term for horror that maybe is a wee bit more intelligent about characters um, uh, or aimed at a slightly more sophisticated crowd than the gore fests that also come under the category of horror. Uh, I don't really like elevated horror. Uh, as, a, as a modern term, because um, to my mind, there's always been elevated horror. Okay, may, you know, maybe uh, few and far between, but there have always been intelligent horror films with good characters. I mean, where, where'd you start yeah. with elevated horror? Is it, I mean, was, was Peeping Tom elevated genre? Was, was, was... Uh, well, well, of course, that was a, a, quite a, a kind of bet, bet noir at the time because uh, Michael Powell never quite recovered from the opprobrium that he got. No, 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 no. Tom oh. came out because it was a, he was a you know sophisticated A-list um, director filmmaker, uh, very lauded for main not mainstream films but you know classic films, uh, and then he chose to do something that people thought was appalling and disgusting and. 
Well, thank, God, thank goodness for Martin, Scors- thank goodness for Martin Scorsese, eh? who, who I think essentially helped save that film, culturally speaking, with, yeah. his, with his very vocal love of it come the late 60s, that uh, I think the British public weren't so... Uh, weren't, the mm. British criti- critical circles weren't so... Uh, so happy to do, which is funny yeah, given yeah. given the same year Psycho came out, you know, and like that yeah. gets that gets a free pass um, yeah. in comparison. Although not without but scandal, Hitchcock, Hitchcock's reputation, reputation and career was different than Michael Powell, course, wasn't it? Course, and yeah. I think there was a there was a we could talk. Yeah, we could talk let's for do, a let, whole half an hour podcast about the British attitude to horror. <laughs> well, look, and everything the, the, that, that entails. I was going to say, if we, I, I recently uh, interviewed. Uh, uh, the, the director of the lodges, the uh, the Irish uh, period, oh, yeah. which is essentially the same. I think it's more or less the same year, or very much give or take, nineteen twenty one, but set in Ireland, sort of all, both both in the wake of the First World War, in the wake of the First World War. Um, but let's start at the beginning with this one. Then. Okay. So, so from your point of view, well, uh, well, first thing to say is it wasn't originally set at that time. Okay. Well, no, 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 no. no. I mean, that's going to say. So, t- tell me, you know, from your point of view, where where did this idea first germinate? Well, I'll try, and, I'll try and tell the tell, tell the story uh, briefly because I've told it uh, times before. But um, um, I was doing a um, a screenwriting um, tutorial. Um, uh, residential course. I was a, a I was a tutor on a residential course, um, the Performing Arts Lab in Kent, uh, okay. and uh, the the um, format of that course was that in the evening, when people had written and we discussed scripts during the day, in the evening people would show their favourite film and talk about why um, it was their favourite film. So I showed um, The Innocents, uh, the Jack Clayton film. Okay. Um, and uh, while I was watching it and talking about it, why it appealed to me, why it was um, uh, subjective to the governess, you know, is she imagining the ghosts? Is she, are the ghosts, um, you know, real or are they in her mind? You know, or the or, or the classic uh, uh, ways of describing what happens in that in the innocence, which is, uh, as you know, an adaptation of the Turn of the Screw, Henry mm-hmm. James's uh, novella. Yeah. Uh, and as I was watching it, I'm talking about the mid. So probably about 1996, so quite a wide way back. Mm-hmm. I was watching it, and I realized there was a, uh, a scene at the end of the second act of The Innocents where the little girl, Flora, is sent away from the haunted house, Bly, the stately home that's haunted by Quint and Miss Jessel, the old governess, and the, and the kind of uh, servant. Uh, and we never see her again. Act three is about um, the little boy Miles and the governess, kind of facing, facing each other off. Um, mm-hmm. But we never hear what happens to Flora. And um, I started to wonder, well, what what happened to Flora? Uh, what did she, as she grew up, how did she think about the ghosts of Quint and Miss Jessel and her time, her childhood in Bly? And did she go and stay with some relatives in some other part of the country? And I started to. Um, segue that into my thoughts, which I've often, often been really interested in, um, how a skeptic like Houdini was obsessed with debunking spiritualists. Uh, and the spiritualists would always say, oh, you only want to debunk, debunk us because deep down you want to believe. Um, so I carried these kind of disparate thoughts, and I kind of slowly came up with an idea of uh, a sequel to Turn of the Screw, Okay. And my, my story was originally called The Interpretation of Ghosts. Right. So Flora, grown up, became Florence, 
and she became a ghost hunter. So she was a skeptical ghost hunter debunking uh, seances and ghosts, and that's what she was known for. She was kind of a Sherlock Holmes, if you like, of rationality. Yeah. But what you, but what you, what I wanted to do was send her back to her own childhood, except she'd blocked out her childhood. So, in fact, my original story was she returns to Bly, the place where she'd seen the ghosts of Quint and Miss Jessel, uh, because there was a ghost there. Mm-hmm. But the place had been turned into a boys' school. So that, hence, the story that eventually became The Awakening. And the whole idea was that she went, her character arc was from a skeptic who was in denial about her past mm-hmm. to a, a kind of terrified um, person uh, being made to discover the truth about herself and then the resolution being that she takes that on board. And, of course, the great thing in a horror film, I think, is that revelation about revelation can go one of two ways. It can either um, strengthen you or destroy you. And that's the, that's the great thing, I think, about, about horror stories. So basically it came from my will to do a, um, uh, a sequel to Turn of the Screw of mm. uh, Flora when she was grown up. And what the other th- element that I should say is I always remember a quote by Hitchcock about Vertigo, in which he said the James Stewart character in Vertigo it's a mystery, but the detective uh, is investigating himself. He is the mystery. And I thought this was a really intriguing idea. Um, and I thought, I wonder if you can do a ghost story where the ghost hunter is investigating the ghost, but they are the mystery they have to unlock. So that was the other element. There's partly that, partly the kind of Houdini seance busting, and partly the sequel to Turn of the Screw. That's where it all kind of came from. Um, and then it developed into a treatment that got the interest of BBC Films. Um, we did some more work on it, and the received wisdom at BBC Films was we don't really want to make it overtly a sequel to Turn of the Screw because it depends on people knowing Turn of the Screw. Of so course, can, yeah, we do, yeah. can we do the same story but kind of have our own backstory so that people don't feel dumb if they don't know the source material. Can we just go back a second in terms of, yeah, your, sure. pro, in terms of your process more than, more than just simply how the, how the, the idea, how, uh-huh. how, where the idea evolved to that treatment and discussion with BBC? Like, when, when, you're think, when you were thinking of that sequel to Turn the Screw and the idea of the ghost hunter solving their own mystery as opposed to a mystery, um, how, how, how do you as a writer set about sort of developing that idea where does where do you parcel off your sort of your research that's needed the the idea of you know brainstorming that kind of thing how does that fit in with how you arrived at that treatment that you then discussed with bbc um i I really think that initially i discussed it with a with a a producer that i knew who Mm. uh, kind of uh, you know, optioned it for a few years. Mm. Um, so there were some conversations going there. But basically, I kind of evolved it into a, you know, maybe a 15, 20-page treatment that kind of told the story. Uh, went through a few different versions. Mm. Uh, and then it went through some new versions um, when, I, when, when the BBC were interested. But it was the BBC um, who started to develop it as a script. So the first draft of the script was done 
with the BBC, BBC people, David Thompson and Joe Oppenheimer and um, okay. Ed Rubin were the people at the BBC that were, you know, it becomes then a conversation, um, uh, you know, and evolves, um, you know, with the, with the personalities of the people that you're collaborating with inevitably. Um, mm. So in that, in that sense, um, what, what, because, because obviously there's a, there's a huge, there's a huge puzzle at work in, in The Awakening, which, you're, you're brilliantly hiding in plain sight lots of information and revelations that, that make no sense because they don't have the context. And then as the film progresses, or the screenplay progresses, it, it becomes more evident what those mean. What, what I remember, I, I, I wrote down, I rewatched it, obviously, before we, we, we spoke, and I wrote, I wrote down, clever exposition of using a, using a book, Fear Kenya, Parents' Death Excerpt. But then, actually, that Kenya bit is, is actually more... Is, is more of an ongoing misdirect that is about the reveal in the end. Yeah, I must say at the outset that um, some of these um, strands were not my invention. I mean, I did work with a, a few directors along the way. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, notably at the end, um, Nick Murphy, who directed it, yeah. um, did his own draft. So I don't in any way want to be completely possessory of the film. Okay. Um, although unt until this moment we've talked as if I am completely possessory of it, um, but I would like to, you know, emphasise that uh, he co-wrote it, mm. uh, and uh, inevitably, as the director of the film, um, he is clearly the, the you know, the co-author of it. And and I think some of those, some of those strands uh, were his invention. Sometimes they were built on. <clears throat> pardon me. Sometimes they were built on suggestions that I had done mm. in a different form. Sometimes they were things that came from left field. Um, and sometimes there were things that I put in the uh, in the original conception that kind of withered on the vine, you know. So as, as always happens, you know, it goes through many ups and downs and mm -hmm. developments and characters come and go. <laughs> characters get jettisoned, uh, sequences get... Uh, adapted or changed or thrown out. Um, you know, for instance, even in the final edit, um, what was in the script as two days and two nights got re-edited so it's one day and one night. Okay. Um, I mean, such basic things as that happen in the edit, which, um, you know, and, and it's funny, people people think, well, if that's if that's really obvious, why didn't you do that on paper? But you know, things become obvious in the editing that are not not clear when you're actually dealing with um, ideas on paper. I was going to say, somebody, somebody more, much more clever than me described it as being, a film gets made three times, you write it, you produce it, you edit it. Yeah. And, and you can add a fourth, you go, then the audience watch it, and then you've got no, you've got no ownership of what happens after then. Yeah, um, yeah. I've, I've been quite uh, fascinated by the idea that, of, of the editing being another writing process in a way. Uh, and funnily enough, writers are... I've never been asked to be part of the editing process, which I don't know whether that's cultural or, or, or what, but I actually think... I might be completely wrong, but I actually think writers would be quite useful in the editing process. Um, for, for the, uh, you know, people think they might be precious, but my experience of, of writers is they're not. They're not precious. Um, they might just be able to think of a different way of looking at something. Yeah, no, I, I think I think it, I think I think it is a cult, cultural stroke, traditional thing that the writer isn't involved in the edit unless they're the writer director. Um, and yeah, it always strikes me that the producing side of it is is a kind of we're going to make these, we're going to shoot these scenes. This is our budget. This is our time. 
and as long as we get all this, we've got a film to make because the script was ready as we went to shoot. We're going to shoot everything, but I, then, then the edit I, begins I to... I think re- it comes from the idea that, um, which I think is misbegotten, the idea that a writer will not understand why lines have to go because a visual is more important than the lines. But I think any writer that understands cinema or is a decent screenwriter knows that, you know, visual visuals trump... Um, words every time, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and, yeah, I, yeah. and I think it's a bit, uh, it's it's a bit of a misconception that screenwriters are, uh, you know, literary bound. I, I think, I think, I think good good ones um, uh, are not really. I, I certainly come from a, a visual background. You know, I w- I didn't go, I didn't go to Oxford and do English. I went to art college and studied graphic design. You know, so I would have been happy being a storyboard artist if anything. Um, you know, so I don't, I, you know, I don't come from studying. Yeah, it's, it's, an, it's an interesting perception, isn't it? The, the, the writer is obsessed with all the words, as opposed to. I mean, one of the things that I find, and I think this, that, that I come from a journalist background, and and, and I've, I've seen it written that, that um, journalists and lawyers, for example, make good screenwriters because of their want to be brief on the page, as opposed to be flowery prose, which kind of makes sense. And, and, and also, I think that the degree to which. Um, Journalists and lawyers can uh, can focus, can absolutely focus okay. like blinkers on their head and actually focus immediately and get something down with clarity. I'm I'm sure that's part that's part of it. You know, having to having to just put something on paper really quickly mm. uh, and efficiently. You know. No, I agree, and I think sometimes as well as the 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 other instinct of a journalist is to edit. So whenever whenever you're invited to look at somebody else's work. It's very much about the fact that those those images you're talking about, which is where the dialogue doesn't need to be said because what will be happening in the room will be enough, which I, I guess is what you're seeing when you're editing, aren't you? you you're beginning to yeah, see that actually yeah. that withering look is more than enough. Nobody has to say, oh, by the way, I'm really angry at you because that, <laughs> because that line doesn't add anything, does it? I mean, uh, I remember yeah. seeing an interview with Dexter Fletcher talking about working with Peter Mullen. Now, this is from an actor's point of view. And he gives him the script, and Peter Mullen just starts red-penning all these, like, soliloquies. And he just looks at, <laughs> Dex- he looks at Dexter and goes, I could do that with a look. I could yeah. do that with a look. And I think that we, we... You know, sometimes actors say that. I've heard a director say that they, um, an actor said, I can do that with a look. Uh, and, you know, they couldn't. <laughs> so... <laughs> So okay. he said, do it again with the lines, you know? So that, <laughs> I think that's a bit of a myth in a, in a way. If you got someone like Peter Mullen, I, I would, I would uh, you know, put money in the bank on their instinct, his yeah. instinct to cross, a, you know, to cross a room or read the telephone bloody directory, as far as I'm concerned. Um, you know what I mean? It depends on the actor, really. So, uh, you know, that's... Uh, true, true, uh, true. Now, when you, when, you were, when, you, when you were writing what was then... Your your version of the screenplay. Let's focus on that for yeah. this this purpose of the conversation. Then yeah. this part of the conversation. Um, what for you, given given the idea you told me you were trying to achieve, is what ends up being the film. Although other other ingredients change. What for you were the main storytelling challenges to make that work when you when um, you were drafting it? Um, let me think. Gosh, we, we we are talking about you know initially I was writing it. Uh, you know, probably 20 years ago. So give me give me pause to. Um, of course, <laughs> of course, of course. Um, um, it's it's I guess being simplistic about it, it's it's passing out character development while delivering 
suspenseful set pieces and mm -hmm. actually having the story points um, uh, evolve, um, you know, while while having the character develop. Um, do, that, do you, that do is you, the do tricky you, thing. And also, of course, also of course, doing scenes that that don't that hopefully don't fall back on cliche because we've all seen a million, you know, um, dark old house. Uh, woman wandering down the corridor being spooked uh, mm. scenes so how do you how I mean and Nick Murphy said this in fairness about genre films he says how do you you know and I think that was his attitude to directing the finished film how do you deliver what someone expects from a genre film and yet do it in a way that doesn't rely on repeating the cliches and that's the I think he said this he said that is the game in a way and, I, and it is the game and it's a joyous game if you love the genre. You know mm. what I mean? It's not a game that's frustrating. It's a game that's that's immensely involving. You know. No, I, I've been I've worked with I've been working with a director who's not from genre on a, on what ostensibly is born out of a genre idea, and a lot of the times during the drafting, his reaction was not so much about the story or the character being wrong. He was more just trying to get me to eradicate what he called horror hokum. So everything yeah. you expect to see in a horror film, he didn't want to be in the script. So the minute I, I did anything... I think that's a good... Uh, that, you know, that's, that's a good test um, of, a, of a story. You know, it's important when you're writing to have these tests. Mm. Um, I, I was discussing an idea with a, with a producer yesterday, and they threw at me and my collaborator certain tests. For instance... Um, uh, don't be too PC about this story. Don't make people black and white. Um, you know, and I was saying, you know, this terrible note that you always get from producers, which is, oh, the character's not likable enough. And and we did have it on this, big time. Um, and, I, you know, I don't know a writer that sets out to make characters likable. They really, you know, it never enters my mind to make characters likable um, because I set out to find them interesting. I wouldn't even say make them interesting. The whole reason I'm writing about them is because I find them interesting. So I don't kind of make them anything. But what I what I have discovered over the years, not necessarily on this, but, mm. but, but certainly it applies to this, is for me, you find the character, well, I find the character. I can't speak for other people. Mm -hmm. I find the character when I find not what makes them likable, but what makes them tick, and often what makes them tick is a flaw, is something missing. Now, you could say that's a wound that needs healing. Mm -hmm. You could say it's something they need to find, but it's something absent. Um, and I think that is the motivation, even if they don't know it, and, and certainly Florence doesn't know it until she discovers it, but there is something missing, which is she doesn't know her own past. So that is that for me was what made the whole idea click. That so I that, so that was that was a eureka moment for you when you were writing this, was realizing that Florence's whole agency is is actually governed by something she doesn't know yet, and is and that's what's bubbling inside her. That's right. That's right. She's blocked out. It's about denial. So it's mm. a, so it's a um, it's a, in a in a way it's a completely Freudian uh, story. 
Yeah. You know, someone once said that ghost stories can either be Freudian or Marxist. You know, it's if it's Marxist, <laughs> it's about it's about the it's about the servants rebelling, you know, and the mm. the underclass rebelling against the the overclass, mm. uh, or it's Freudian, you know, the return of the repressed. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. so part of part of what's going through my mind as well is how do you do a story about the repre repression of memory? which we could argue uh, uh, whether that, uh, that theory in itself has been debunked, but nevertheless it's a cultural idea that we hold to this day because of Freud, um, that she's blanked out her actual childhood because it was, uh, it was traumatic and she has to rediscover it in order to be healed is, is, is the notion. But I like the idea of doing it. Initially in my story, it was set in the 1860s, which was, which, oh, sorry, 1880s, I think, which was yeah. 20 years after the, the turn of the screw, which was set about 1860, I think. I might be wrong about that. I'm casting back 20 years now. But my initial idea was to set it in the Victorian era mm. because it's a repressive era. Everything about the Victorian era is repressive. The way they dress, the way they speak, everything is held back, nothing is expressed. And that, for me, went with the idea of this woman whose past was repressed as well. Mm. So her discovering of the past was breaking out, of, in a way, of the kind of corsetry of the era. Um, yeah, so her, so her micro... Uh, and then her a, micro. A, one of the directors that came on board, uh, and it's no harm me telling you who, who, who it was, it was James Watkins who went on to direct um, The Woman in Black. Mm -hmm. um, he wanted to move the setting to this post-Second World, post-First World War, because he felt that he wanted to, the atmosphere of a country in, more, in mourning, mm -hmm. um, that everyone had, had felt grief, and the whole kind of emotional landscape was one of grief. Um, and he, and he's, he said, I'm not sure this is true, but he said he felt that spiritualism uh, reached a peak in the years after the First World War. I'm not sure that's technically true, but he felt emotionally the audience would, would buy the fact that spiritualism, um, you know, became higher after the, after the First World War. So that, so that, in, that change of era, in a way, came from, came from him. Um, and, uh, and, and I think, in a way, that's the weird thing about the development of a script. So I think when Nick Murphy came on board and made the finished film, uh, he not only accepted what James wanted in terms of the uh, change of uh, setting, but I think he kind of owned it in a way. Mm. So the finished film really feels comfortable in that era um, for all sorts of reasons. And, and that's the weirdness about the way films evolve and get made is that, is that the original uh, notion in my mind wasn't that at all, but eventually it becomes part and parcel of what the, what the film is in the end, you know. But, but you've still, I mean, it's interesting, isn't it, that, that, that those two big there's two big elements of the themes you're trying to explore. I didn't feel, from an audience point of view, I lost that sense of repression because, to me, early twenties, post First World War, was yeah. still was still a period where you know yeah. the, the underclasses were ignored. You know, there was, and you, you know, still get a, still get a sense, of course, that she was a woman doing a man's job in many senses, um, which, is, I mean, which is important important for me. I mean. An image in my mind when I was writing the original script was, um, do you remember the piano, uh, Jane Campion's of film? Of course, yeah, yeah, those, yeah, yeah. Um, those uh, black silhouetted women on the beach with the mm. piano. Yeah. Um, and I had a similar idea because initially her, her sidekick was another woman. So I had this image in my mind of these 
uh, women in their crinoline dresses kind of floating around um, an old house with their scientific equipment. That was my, that was my kind of abiding image in my mind, um, doing what you think is a man's job, being scientists. Um, but of course, I think you still get that in the 20s, it's, you know, even post-suffragette, um, um, only just post-suffragette, of course. Um, so it's, so the, the, the interesting thing is that, is that even though scripts change, I think, weird, weird expression to use, but I think the ghost of earlier drafts remains in them, um, so that even though scenes have been extracted and changed and all the rest of it, if you're lucky, the kind of spirit of the essence uh, stays in it. No, I, th I think that's a. It, it can either be a blessing or a curse. Sometimes it's uh, you can you can be having discussions with people, and you begin to realise that what they're discussing is about. You've left like the fag end of things you thought you got rid of, and you hadn't quite rubbed it all out of the actual screenplay, as it were. And mm. you you realise you've 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 inadvertently hung on to something that, that links to stuff you have got rid of and they're, and they're beginning to see it again you're like oh no that's uh, that has to go so, so in that sense so what you're saying there then for you whether it was 1860s or whether it was the, the 1920s the central point was that you had this central uh, this, this female character of Florence who was sort of going against the grain in terms of how society might view her role I don't think that, I think the central thing that she's in denial and she's acting in her life in a way that's not truthful. Okay, okay. Uh, I think that's the, that's the essence of her. Um, mm. uh, and, that, and then through the process of the story, she comes to realize the truth. I mean, it's interesting when Rebecca Hall was playing the part, uh, one thing that I did hear about it was that she started reading it and, and said, as soon as she read that this was a skeptical character, she thought, oh, hello, I know where this is going. Uh, and she kind of said it, I think, although I got it kind of third hand, she said mm. it as a criticism. And I thought, no, that's not a criticism at all. That is that is actually the setup of the plot. Mm. That's not like I'm trying to hide that. That is actually signaling to the audience, no, this is the story we're going on. You know what I mean? It's not accidental that I'm revealing that information. It's kind of like, you know, setting my stall. Yeah, because um, in a way, you've, you've kind of... You've, you've, you've kind of done and you've kind of done with the investigation. It's all solved. There is no, you know, there's a perfectly rational explanation, and then things escalate, don't they? It's sort of the yeah. the 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 thing you think we're delivering on is that this is a ghost hunter that's going to tell everyone there's no ghosts. And I guess I guess in an age of sort of whether it be 1860s or 1920s, where where and 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 that post World War period did give rise to the spiritualist movement, as far as I know, it kind of had its at its peak in the kind of run-up to, to, um, to the Second World War, from what I've read, there was a famous uh, woman whose name I can't remember, which probably doesn't make her sound very famous, who... Um, who Helen Duncan. Who was the spiritualist, the government. Is that, is that the name of her, who the, who the government uh, well, used? Well, Hel Helen Duncan was, uh, was I think, uh, mixed up with... Um, uh, it was quite a famous, famous case where she was, I think... Uh, um, she had messages in a, in a seance that they they interpreted as um, that she had access to secret codes. That's right. So yeah. she was a, she was actually imprisoned. Um, yeah, you know, for, deaths, for, of, for, deaths, think, of, deaths of sailors yeah. that she couldn't possibly have known about. That's right. Yeah, yeah. yeah that yeah, was yeah. Helen Helen Duncan. I think she was the last 
person to be imprisoned under that particular law. But uh, yeah, so that was the, the Second World War. But I mean, I've, I, you know, I, uh, spiritualism began in the in in really the uh, late 1840s. Oh really? Um, okay. With the with the Fox sisters, and I've written a, a screenplay and a play about about them, and that's a fascinating story because mm. uh, it began with. Um, Knockings happening in a in a in a in a little shack that they lived in in uh, Hydesville, New York State. Um, mm. And before before you know these two little kids um, started reporting these knockings that they interpreted as messages. And then before they knew it, there were crowds outside the house and whatnot. And they were they were swept on this wave of hysteria really and became famous and fated to the extent that they moved to New York and became sponsored by Barnum, you know, the circus. Um, uh, chap, um, and they became celebrities basically. But the fascinating thing for me about the, the story of the Fox Sisters was that 40 years later, given that given that by that time spiritualism had spread, and I think numbers were in the tens of millions by the late 1880s, uh, Margaret Fox, who was the middle sister, stood up on the stage of the New York Academy of Music in 1888 and said to a packed house, you know what, it was all a hoax. We made it all up. And, <laughs> and of course, they didn't believe her. They didn't believe her. They claimed that she was drunk, mad, doing it for money, and all the rest of it. But I was fascinated by that story of those no. three sisters, and I've, I've written about it uh, kind of ever since in various forms, because I just, that scene where she says, you know what, it was all made up, and no one believes her because they, they've invested in it. They've invested in their belief too much. Um, kind of the opposite of Florence in my story, who hasn't invested in her belief at all. She's in denial of her belief, you know what I mean? And she's forced to accept it. So I'm kind of fascinated by, by belief structures and that kind no, of thing. No, I was going to say, I wrote, I wrote down, uh, believe in nothing versus believe in something. And yeah. almost like there's a, there's an, it's invalid in, in, in a lot of people's perception of an individual if you say, you believe in nothing because it's like, well, what, yeah. do you, what do you believe? It's like, yeah. well, you, if you said I believe, well, well, if, the, if I believe in thing, now. The curious thing about when people talk to me about ghost stories is they say, they always say, do you believe in them? And I always say, no, I don't. I'm a complete skeptic uh, and uh, I would say rationalist. Mm. Um, uh, and they look at me really puzzled. And, but, but actually, most people I know that write supernatural stories don't necessarily believe in the truth of them. It's it's one thing to be excited by the literature of something, but a completely different thing to to uh, to believe scientifically or personally in that being true. You know, um, I mean, the, like I say, the literature of ghost story, which which is a long and respectable and noble tradition that goes way back, mm. uh, I find immensely exciting because because of the poetry of it. And the symbolism of it, and the the metaphorical value of something lasting beyond the grave. Is it fearful? Is it actually, in some ways, um, redemptive? Is it is it helpful? You know, it, and and the whole realm of the supernatural, in this sense, or paranormal, as we now call it, um, gives you an opportunity to 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 kind of discuss in dramatic form um, issues like loss, grief, you know fear and and um you know all those things but but do it in a way that's that's I, as i say it without sounding grand on on a kind of poetical level mm. rather than rather than a literal one i would say that you could have there's nothing to stop people talking about 
grief on, say, EastEnders. You can say, oh, I miss, you know, I miss uh, Phil Mitchell. You know, yeah. I know he's still, he's, I know he's still going, but that's the first character that sprung to mind. But you know, people could sit and, you know, uh, weep into their hankies and talk about grief. That's one way of perfectly respectable way of doing a naturalistic uh, story. Mm. But uh, the other way of doing it is actually extrapolate it into genre, which is my favoured um, avenue. Which is to take it into genre, in which case you can uh, reveal different things about a story. You can, you can. Um, you can put it under the not microscope, magnifying glass. Um, mm. You, you know, it by by loosening the imagination, you can actually reveal different things about it. Um, I mean, in in the series I wrote, TV series Afterlife, I had a scene at the very end. That's after 14 episodes of TV. A scene at the end where one character's dead and one's alive, and they have a conversation. Um, and you can't you can't do that really in a naturalistic series. Uh, you can only do it in a genre series. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And yeah. that's what that's what I find really exciting about about working in in the genre. Of course, you have to be c- careful because there are many pratfalls to be had about getting it wrong and doing it badly and all the rest of it. Which is why, um, you know, serious naturalistic drama looks down its nose. Uh, or, or kind of used to anyway uh, at uh, dramas that were more imaginative, genre-based, and that kind of thing, science fiction. I was going to say, so how do you, how do because I think the, the, the trap that, that people can often fall down is that that crazy and mad means that it must be it must be paranormal or something. But actually, one of the one of the beauties of of the awakenings is that it never feels like the supernatural elements of it are just there to make me go jump or make me go whatever they are. They are part of the action, which is, as yeah. you say, I mean, key, I can't, I can't speak for how Nick, um, Nick's draft or how Nick directed the film, but mm. I, I can only say what my attitude to supernatural. I, w- I went and pitched to do, which uh, luckily I did get a chance to do, which was an adaptation of Midwinter of the Spirit that was on TV, which had supernatural scenes in it, but mm. a mixture of crime and supernatural, about <coughs> a, a vicar that gets involved in. Uh, Satanism and exorcism. And all of uh, one of the questions that was asked me when I was pitching to do it was, how how would you do the supernatural scenes? And I was mm. like, I kind of was a bit taken aback because it's like a no-brainer to me. You know, I've been writing supernatural scenes all my life. I couldn't believe someone would ask me how I'm going to do it. So I, I thought, how do I do it? You know, I just do it naturally. I, I, and my answer was, I... I, the only, I do it in the only way I can do it, which is I do it from the psychology, the psychology of the person seeing the ghost. And if you stick to the psychology, uh, then you can't go wrong, really. Um, you know, for me, for me, ghosts are a subjective experience, uh, and it's all about the person seeing the ghost, far more than the ghost itself in the stories I like to do. Mm. Um, and, and that's your... That's, that to me is the key of writing those scenes. Is that um, it's, it's why um, I always say that one of the engines of a supernatural story is doubt. Because I think if I had a supernatural experience right now, like I saw someone out the corner of my eye, mm. the first thing that the second thing that occurs to me would be first thing is maybe I'm going mad. The second would be I didn't really see it. So. It would be 
a heavy uh, a heavy dose of doubt would go with the experience, uh, which makes it a what makes it a feel more genuine as a psychological event. So it's for me, it's trying to make that that um, supernatural event feel psychologically real. Mm. Um, if people see a ghost and then accept it, oh my God, I just saw a ghost. It just doesn't seem authentic to me. It seems like Scooby Doo, and it seems it seems, um, you know, cheap. So um, so that's. That just gives you a little insight into how I come at things, really. I, th I, I, I think I think the character has to that the character also tells you um, how to do it. I can't imagine. I can't really imagine um, writing a scene without thinking uh, of the character first and foremost, really. And okay. the nature of the ghost, of course, in in virtually all the ghost stories that I do, the nature of the ghost is harkens back to this missing part or wound of the character uh, all the way through afterlife and I you know there were basically 14 different stories in the series afterlife not mm. only the main characters but the individual stories of the week they were all about something unresolved in the character that sees the ghost and the ghost represents what's missing um, so that's just how I that's just how I tell those stories no well look Loads of other people would tell ghost stories differently, and they'd represent different things to them. But that's the joy of the, of the subgenre, really. Indeed. Well, look, I'm, I'm the time's ticking on us fast, so I'm, I'm going to have to uh, draw to a close. I, I, that's great. I think that's I can great. talk. I hope I haven't rattled on. No, no, no. It's been it's been enlightening, really. Uh, not not in the sense that I now believe in ghosts, but in the sense of, <laughs> in the sense of um, using paranormal as a as a as a way of um, getting to the uh, literally to the ghost of a, of a character's uh, of a character's self. Uh, I think that's a really interesting way of of of, of seeing the, the the role of ghosts in a story, as opposed to I think we despite the fact that there are loads of examples. I mean, I, all the time you were thinking, I kept thinking of um, of Rebecca. Um, the, I mean, uh -huh. a, a ghost that you never actually see, really. It's it's a ghost that just exists in the story. Yeah, presence. you know, yes, you know, true. and it's not it's not even so. It's not. It's more that that becomes the self doubt of the central character. You know, like am I better than am I? You know, and and all that. But it's it's still a ghost in a sense, isn't yeah, it? But yeah, but it's about right. but it's about insecurity in that sense, I suppose. It's um, probably the nearest Hitchcock came to a ghost story, isn't it? Indeed, yeah, yeah, yeah. Unless, yeah. unless he did some on the on TV, I don't, I'm not sure, but uh, no. Well, look, let's draw this one to go. Thank you very much for coming on the podcast to My talk pleasure. about The My Awakening and, and more widely talking about writing supernatural stories. Thank you. The Brickflix podcast is provided absolutely free. If you want to help me get the podcast out to more people, please take a moment to leave a review on iTunes. Or if you want to help me out directly, there's a link in the show notes to my Patreon page. All contributions are welcome. And the music is by Chris Reed of thecomposers.tv
Hey, y'all. Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.